Thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikraman Sharmani. The podcast was started in early 2020 to share some of the ideas from his most recent book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, which is available for purchase via Amazon, bookshop.org, and most other retailers. This episode is the audio portion of a webinar hosted by Dr. Mancharamani on October 5th with Annie Duke, a professional poker player and author of both Thinking and Bets, as well as the recently released How to Decide. The video replay of the discussion is available at www.mancharamani.com. Thank you everyone for joining. Uh, this is the fall section of the Think for Yourself webinar series. Uh, as you can tell, today I'm going to be having <laughs> Annie Duke, uh, who I've been a fan of from afar for a while, uh, really enjoyed her writings, uh, her work, and she's got a really uh, fascinating story that I'm hoping she'll get into with us. Uh, but I also want to give you a heads up on who we have coming up later this week and then afterwards. So uh, for the Later on Thursday of this week, I'm actually going to have uh, Rakesh Karana join us for a discussion. And Rakesh is the current dean of Harvard College. As you can imagine, uh, a lot of anxiety in the world of education because of COVID and the disruption uh, that many students are feeling. But also, uh, from an academic administrator's perspective, this is a handful. Uh, so we're going to have a conversation with Rakesh about what it's like at Harvard, uh, someone I've known for, uh, for a while. Uh, and then next week, I have Susan Helms. Uh, Susan Helms is a retired three-star Air Force general uh, who spent, I think it was 221 days in space as an astronaut. Uh, she had for a long period of time, the world record for the longest spacewalk. Uh, I think there's a woman who's out lasted her, uh, but I think it was like nine hours or something like that. Uh, so that's gonna be a really fun conversation about what it's like in space and, and some of the stuff she's done uh, with her career. Um, and then the week after I have uh, Dr. Katz, um, who wrote a book called How to Eat, uh, a little bit different than, uh, although related perhaps to Annie's book on how to decide, uh, but we're going with the how-to series here <laughs> for books, uh, which I thought was just really fascinating. And uh, he's left the academic world and the medical practice world to start a business called Diet ID. And he'll tell us more about that. Uh, so that's the, uh, that, those are the next uh, three speakers after today. Uh, and then of course, uh, I have to put my self-promotion up here uh, for, for 30 seconds. Uh, the book is finally available. Uh, the spring it wasn't, now it is. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, I'd encourage you to get it. I'd love any feedback you have. Um, so with that, uh, let me welcome Annie. Uh, Annie, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I am thrilled to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to, that we got this together pretty quickly, actually. We did. We did. Well, so all of you will have read that Annie's new book is coming out. It's called How to Decide. It comes out, is it next weekend? Yeah, uh, Tuesday the 13th, a week from tomorrow. I, but in <laughs> a, a very bumpy road to having it released. I, I, I'm not sure if everybody knows, but it was uh, the original release date was September 15th. And I got a phone call from the president of the public, uh, the publishing house. Um, I think it was about two and a half weeks before it was supposed to come out. And I'm like, why, why is Adrian calling me? It's a very, as anybody who's written a book, like getting a call from the president, it's like not usual. And he said, uh, there's a problem. Um, and what had happened was that uh, part because of COVID, 
there was a misprint in the book. The reason why I say because of COVID is COVID didn't cause the misprint. It's that there's fewer people who can be in the printer at the printer and some a representative from the publishers can't actually be hmm. in the plant uh, in order to be able to check the book as it comes off the press. Uh, that aside from the fact that there's been a huge surge in demand for books. And so the printers themselves are just really overwhelmed. So what happened was that uh, books are printed in 20 page kind of tranches. And one of the 20 page tranches got printed twice. Oh, and no. one, of them, one of them got left out. So uh, we had to make the decision to delay for a month. But now, now it's a week from Tuesday. A week from Tuesday, October thirteenth. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that's exciting. I there there were no repeats of twenty pages in the version I had. So no, no, the one that you had had all the pages in the correct order. Perfect, which is, and it's a great read. I do recommend it. Should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, any let's start with your personal background, right? So you grew up in New Hampshire, um, and let's just say as part of a poker playing family. Well, I mean, it eventually became a poker playing family and as much as my, my brother also became a world champion poker player, but uh, yeah. we were, I would more aptly describe us as a, as a avid card playing family. Okay. So, um, uh, so yeah, I, I grew up in New Hampshire, uh, just outside of Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, my father was a teacher at a place called St. Paul School, um, which is quite a famous boarding school. Uh, my dad actually, interesting. I mean, this is kind of an American dream situation because my father's parents were uh, first generation. Um, his dad never completed sixth grade. Mm -hmm. um, he was an orphan. Yep. Um, and so he, his father started becoming a, he, he was a door-to-door -door salesman in order to support himself. And my father has a PhD. So I think that's just, you know, awesome. quite an arc. So yeah, my dad had gr grown up in um, uh, West Philly and then, sort of made his way to get a master's at Harvard in English lit. I ended up being a teacher at St. Paul's. So I grew up on the campus of, of St. Paul's. Um, actually got to go there. It was one of the perks of my father being a teacher was that you, your tuition was waived. Um, and from there, I went to Columbia. And then from Columbia, I went to UPenn to study cognitive science. Yep. Um, was getting my PhD uh, there. I actually did five years in the program there and was... Um, really had finished all the work for my, my yeah. dissertation. But as I was going out for all of my job talks, I got sick. I needed to take a year off. I needed to support myself some way. Um, and I was intending to go back to, to become a professor. So I wasn't, I wasn't going to like reboot a new career or something like that. So um, that's how I ended up in poker. It was very strange thing in the nineties in particular, because it wasn't on television. But again, my, my brother had already been playing. So he's the one who actually suggested that I do that to, literally to make money in the meantime, until I went out onto the academic job market. And then um, I retired from poker 18 years later. So it's a pretty long meantime. There you go. So, but Eddie, you, I mean, Montana? Montana is not uh, what jumps to mind when I think of like poker destinations. Yeah, so the way that Montana ends up in there is so I was I was in UPenn, I was uh, living in West Philly, and um, I when I got sick, I was actually newly engaged, and uh, so when I knew that I had to take some time off, we my my ex husband he's now my ex husband but my husband at the time his family actually lived in Montana and so he suggested that we just go stay in Montana for a year until I, until I finish, you know, until I was finishing everything up just to sort of relax. And then, you know, we would hang out with his family and whatever. So when we got there, um, 
it was my brother who actually knew, I can't remember how he knew this, but he knew that there was poker in Montana. So they had these little tiny legal card games. Um, so a bar could get a license to have a card game. So the place that I went was in Billings, Montana. It was in uh, downtown Billings. It was a place called the Crystal Lounge. Yeah. And when you came in, it was, it's probably whatever's in your head is what it was. Um, <laughs> okay. There was usually, like on Saturday nights, there was one guy covering country songs, like in the corner. And then um, Montana had some legal gambling. So there was like a row of uh, $5 poker machines that people would sit at. And then the this was also the bar where um, the sex workers were. So that was sort of the top of the bar. So it was drinking, gambling, a guy in the corner yep. singing, and then some other vice happening. And yep. then if you went sort of past all of that, there was a very narrow stairwell down into the basement of the Crystal Lounge. Um, and there were two tables and the ceilings were about like maybe a foot higher than my head and I'm not that tall. Um, and it was just, you, you could hardly see from the smoke. I mean, it's just like every single person smoked in there. And there were two tables. One was a low stakes table, which was a $3, $6 table. Uh, and then in the back, there was the high stakes, which is $10, $20. And uh, it was like ranchers and, and cowboys and it was all men. Anyway, so that's, yeah, that's where I started playing. My guess is there weren't many women. Yeah. There were some women who were dealers. I mean, dealing the cards. I Because I said the word vice, I feel like I need to, <laughs> I need to clarify that. Um, they were dealing the cards. So they were professional dealers. Um, but in terms of women who played, gosh, I, I could probably count on like maybe one hand the number of times that there was another woman who sort of came through in the time that I, that I played there. So... Um, and there were some real, like, th there were some real stereotypes. So just as an example, there was a guy named Elwood, um, mm -hmm. whose nickname was Tiny. Yeah. So, like, I, I would, I, I'd clock a minute, like, maybe 450 okay. in terms of pounds. <laughs> right? so I, that's yeah. why I was saying Tiny, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so it's like, you know, it's like, I just, it, it, it was just really, like, it was really a scene. And it was kind of like a, very much like a caricature. Yep. of what you could imagine that this sure. kind of situation to be. It was really, it was, it was an interesting start to that career for me, for sure. But it worked out, right? I mean, you, you were successful there and then you took it on the, to, to quote unquote, the big time, right? Down to Vegas. Yeah, so I, uh, so I played in Montana for a couple of years and within a couple of years, I actually played in my first World Series of Poker, which would be like the championship series that occurs for poker. And I did really well. I played four events. I made two final tables and I actually came in, I might get this wrong. It was like 20, somewhere in the twenties. It might've been 21st or 20, somewhere between 21 and 27. I can't even remember the place in the main event. Like I've made it really, really deep. Um, and I actually made a profit of $70,000 that year. So it just in that one event. And so my husband and I sort of decided we we're going to take that money and moved to Las Vegas where I could play in bigger stakes because yep. at, in the stakes that I was playing in Montana, um, even if I was like way better than the game, like much, much better the game, than the game, um, the, the amount of money I was probably going to rate to make an hour was about $20 an hour. Um, yep. And, and because one of the reasons they just had a cap on the size of the pot. So you could, there was only so much that you could, it just sort of capped how much you could make. And, you know, $20 an hour, like, I mean, I was young, I was in my twenties, but, um, you know, I was hoping to make more than that. So we moved down to Vegas um, in 19, right, 
at the end of 1994, I was actually pregnant with my first child. Okay. And uh, yeah, and then that's that's what I ended up doing. And I did I played poker exclusively until about 2002. Okay. And then in 2002, I ran pretty randomly actually got asked to speak to a group of options traders yeah. um, about how poker might inform their thinking about risk. Yep. I didn't actually end up talking about that. I actually ended up talking more in the biases and heuristics space. Um, because I think that's absolutely more important. R you know, risk is basically like a calculation that you can make, but the inputs into whatever your your risk calculations are, are are really where things go wrong. Is that we we really misestimate what our edge is, and if we if we can't estimate that properly, then then everything else that you ha happens after that is just going to be, you know, not not good. So um, so that's what I ended up talking about them in two thousand two, and that was when I started really thinking. Uh, in a really explicit way about the way that my background in cognitive science and yeah. uh, what sort of this real world, very practical experience of decision making um, yeah. that poker really demands of you, uh, where you have, you know, everything that you want, lots and lots of skin in the game, you have to do it really quickly, very little information, there's lots of luck influencing it, it's a market that you have to trade in, you have to build models of other players yeah. um, with real world consequences. So I started thinking about that conversation more explicitly. Um, and from that first talk, really kind of ended, ended up building out this consulting business. And um, then in 2012, I, I rolled out and um, that's where I've been ever since. And now, funnily enough, I've circled all the way back to UPenn, yep. where I'm once again back in the research game as well. So gotcha. I, full circle. And you gave up the poker? I haven't played poker professionally since 2012. Yeah, not at all. And when I mean, you, but I feel like I'm playing poker every day. So I, you know, it's <laughs> I, on how you find poker. Yeah. Well, you know, the professionally part is the part that's interesting. I worry about the the, the poor people in the neighborhood game that may not know your background. <laughs> oh, actually, you know, it's really funny. Um, so, uh, and it doesn't have to be this way because there's lots of luck. But uh, when I first, so one, I was living out west, obviously, I, I, for a while in Las Vegas, and then and then I actually lived in Los Angeles for a long time. Um, but when I retired, I actually moved back to the East Coast, which is where I'm from. Yeah. And um, when I very first moved back here, my my now husband, my second husband, um, he had a friend who was who said, "Oh, you know, do you think Annie would come and play? We have a yearly tournament." So in this area near where I live, there's like a group of home games, and then all the home games get together, yeah. and they have like a big tournament once a year. So. And yeah, so they, so he, he says to my husband, like, do you think Annie would come and play? So, <laughs> you know, my husband says to me, do you, do you want to, I mean, it'll be a friend of me, like, please, yeah. can you do me this favor? We can go play in this thing. So we yeah. do. And so I won it. And here's the deal with it. When you win it, you get like, it's like the Stanley cup. They give you a trophy and you get to keep it for a year. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, if you walked into my house, you couldn't find you would it would be very hard for you to find my actual world championship trophies i do have them somewhere but not in a place where public people would be able to see them but i had that trophy from this tournament <laughs> on my mantle for a year i've never been prouder of any accomplishment in my life that's great good for you well the speaking of these home games and sort of the the sort of uh charity uh games that somehow made it into your life I noticed that you did stuff with Africa, uh, sort of using poker tournaments to raise money for Africa. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I've done a talk a little bit also about why Africa. 
Oh, sure. Um, so it's a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. So poker turns out is like a great way to raise money for charity because unlike um, like a rubber chicken dinner and you know, whatever it's, you know, we all know like those things aren't necessarily that fun. Um, if you do a poker tournament and you allow, you know, you raise money that way, uh, people actually really enjoy themselves and it's for a great cause. So uh, I've actually sort of organized a few different big poker tournaments for charities, um, two of which actually I founded. So one I founded with Don Cheadle and our friend Norman Epstein, um, and it was anti-up for Africa. So I don't, do you remember when all this stuff was happening in Su Sudan? Sure. Uh, and, you know, Chad was, had, I think it was 2 million refugees or something from S Sudan, and it was just really a mess. So we... Uh, raised about $4 million actually, uh, which we were then distributing to charities, to other NGOs that were really trying to help with the unrest there. Um, uh, the Enough Project was one of them, Refugees International, um, International Res Rescue Committee, uh, and then um, water.org. So, uh, so did that for a while. Um, also, uh, I'm on the board of After School All-Stars, which was founded by Arnold Schwarzenegger, and we've been doing an annual charity poker tournament to raise money for that. So what we do there is uh, provide three hours of structured after school for about 90,000 kids across the country every day. Um, obviously, a little challenging during COVID, but we've been actually uh, trying to bring online education to help uh, shore up the learning loss. Yep. for these kids because we're dealing with uh, almost almost 100% of the kids that we deal with uh, are received Title I benefits. So these the, they're the most at risk, certainly during the pandemic. And so we work to really ramp up being able to deliver them online programs because they're the ones most at risk of being left behind. Um, and then I also founded my own charity, um, my, which is the, decision, uh, the Alliance for Decision Education. Yep. And we also do an annual poker tournament. So I, I guess, so by, when I say professionally, I mean, I, professional, I, I do play poker for, for sure. to raise money for the causes that I care about. Yep. Yep. No, that's great. So last tidbit on the personal side, before we get into the content of your books, uh, which are great, um, TV, right? You spent oh. a little time, Celebrity Apprentice, other fun stuff. Uh, the Foxworthy, I don't know, I forget the name of the one with Jeff Fox. Jeff Foxworthy, are you smarter than a fifth grader? Yeah, that's it, yes. I didn't know what Floem was. Finally. I got every single question right, literally every single question right. We get to the final question and you get laid 10 to one. And I said, you know, I mean, obviously there's a 10% chance that I know the answer to this. So anyway, but I didn't know Floem, it was sad. Where'd the whole TV thing come from? Was this something that sort of came to you because of your poker prominence? Or was it something that you got connected to someone and you said, hey, this could be fun as something to do on, on the side also? Um, yeah, I think this is where, you know, you can kind of see the intersection between somebody's skill, like the thing that they're doing that they're quite good at, but then other things that look favorably upon you. So when poker, when I first started playing poker in the, that basement in the Crystal Lounge, the idea that poker would ever be on television was like, yeah. I mean, what? No. Uh, for one thing, if anybody has ever tried to watch poker not on TV where you can't see everybody's cards, it's quite boring. Yeah. It's, it's like a super boring game to watch and a really fascinating game to play because as a player, you know, you can see your cards, but you're trying to sort of deduce what, everybody else's cards are. Um, 
Now, what happened was in 2002, there was an innovation, which was they figured out a way to show what all the players were holding. And that actually made it a really interesting game to watch because now the viewer was actually in a superior position to the player. So if you're just like watching a game, you can't see anybody's cards. So you're in an inferior position to the player in terms of your knowledge. But when you watch it on TV now, you're actually in an inferior, uh, superior position because you can see everybody's cards. That made the game quite fascinating to watch. So, um, so now all of a sudden poker becomes like the hot new thing on television. Now, like, uh, look, I'm not saying I'm not a good player. I'm not saying I didn't win championships, but there are people who are much better than I am that did not uh, end up with as much sort of television attention on them, mainly because poker at the professional levels is about 3% women. Mm -hmm. And I was particularly unusual even under that group, having gone to two Ivy Leagues. And also I was a mom with four kids. So this was like, I just had a whole bunch of stuff that literally had not, you know, I had done nothing to do with my, you know, I just, I love my children and I had a lot of them. Um, and uh, my parents made sure I got a good education and, you know, those kinds of things, but those came together to create just a, a good brand for me. Um, and so I think that I was quite lucky in the sense that I did not necessarily have to have the same level of bona fides that uh, someone who might be more straight down the middle, uh, you know, think sort of, um, the profile of someone who's a quant or a data scientist in Silicon Valley or something like that, like, yeah. you know, a uh, white guy. Um, yeah. yep. So, uh, so, so I ended up actually uh, being pretty well known in poker. And again, I like, look, I won some stuff, but n not as much as necessarily the, the yeah. other people. Um, so because I got really well known in poker, then that brought up these other kind of opportunities for me. Yeah. One of which happened to be Celebrity Apprentice. So Annie's being very modest for those of you listening. Annie won over $4 million uh, while playing professional poker. Is that right? I mean. So, in, it, yeah. So th those numbers are kind of weird because um, they're only talking about tournament poker, but most of your money in poker actually comes from cash games. Got it. So, so, so a lot you're, more. <laughs> so you're. Your, your published earnings, the, yeah. I paid everything to the IRS I was supposed That's to. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> your published earnings only come from this particular type of poker. And particularly when I was playing uh, during the good, a good, like probably the first 12 years when I played poker, um, the tournament prize pools were just much smaller. Sure. And so you would play tournaments, but your real, your real work was coming from the cash games. Um, that's, that's switched now. I mean, people still, uh, most of people's money does come from the cash games, but there are people who really can make a very good living playing tournaments because the prize pools have gotten so big as poker's gotten more popular, but that was happening more toward the sunset of my career. Sure. So, um, yeah, so that, that's, but yeah. I mean, I, yeah, like I say, I've, look, I've won, I've won some championships. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm an actual world champion poker player. I'm just saying, I'm like, I'm not just, there's people are so much better than me. I just want to point that out. There's lots of people who are so much better than me. So I want to start turning to the topic of decision-making um, and also encourage anyone who's listening, if you have questions, feel free to type it into the Q&A box. I'll monitor that and we'll come to those questions as uh, we get an opportunity to do so. Uh, but before we go there, Annie, what's your favorite book or favorite movie or both? <laughs> oh, gosh. So, I, you know, my favorite, my favorite, th th those are all like really hard for me to answer because I, 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 no, for real, because like there's different versions of me. Well, you 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 reference the Matrix in here. I remember. Yeah. That. So that's actually not my favorite movie. I mean, it's a fine movie. I like it, but um, 
you know, it's probably like, you know, I love like Marathon Man, um, uh, The Apartment, like Days of Wine and Roses, but then also like anything by Wes Anderson is incredible. <laughs> Eternal Sunshine is a Spotless Mind, like amazing. Okay. Um, yeah, so like movies are really hard for me to name a favorite. Yep, okay. um, and then books, it's sort of the same thing. It depends on like, are we talking about like nonfiction or fiction? Let's start with uh, fiction. Catch 22. Okay. Yeah, love it. Also, by the way, Middle March though is so good too. Hmm, mm -hmm. there you go. That's another one. One, okay. flew, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. Yep, okay. Uh, even Cowgirls Get the Blues. Oh no, see, I can't stop. <laughs> Get a lot. There you go. Well, that's good. That's a good yeah. Um so let's turn to, to decision-making. You've had this storied uh, background in probabilistic thinking uh, that you were successful with, which is great. Um, and now you've tried to put that into uh, frameworks, ways of thinking, clarity on better decision-making for obviously kids and, and some of the nonprofit work you're doing, but also for the rest of us with books, whether it's, you know, thinking in bets or how to decide. Uh, let's start with just your first and most important tidbit. If we had to give one piece of advice, would it be something like the resulting logic? Uh, what would it be if you had one piece of advice to share with people on how to make better decisions? Yeah, so, it all goes under the, um, it, it's all under an umbrella, which is that uh, you have to think probabilistically. Yeah. So, but that, I feel like that's a little bit too vague, right? And all that means is that, all it means to think probabilistically is that as you're mapping out a decision, um, well, it's two ways. One is as you're, as you're mapping out a decision that the things, there's some set of possible outcomes of any particular option that you choose. Uh, and it's, it's probabilistic. It, luck determines which one of those you're going to observe on any iteration. Um, and then also you, but, but you also have to think probabil probabilistically about your own beliefs. So what you have to understand is that the, the things that you believe, the models that you have of the world are generally neither perfectly accurate nor perfectly inaccurate. They, they're somewhere in between. Um, and so we also need to sort of view uh, our own beliefs in a probabilistic sense, right? That there's, there's some probability of them being true or false. And then that's sort of what, how you kind of get to what I think are the kind of the two most important things. Uh, the first is that whatever you observe happen is not the thing that had to happen. It wasn't deterministic. Yep. Um, and I think it's an incredibly important concept for people to really hold on to. Um, and the other is that um, uh, generally you believe your uh, the things that you believe, you believe to be much more accurate than they are. And so if there's one thing that you could do to improve your decision-making, it would be to find out what other people think. Yep. So meaning we're overconfident. Um, so we tend to be, it's a whole bunch of things. So we tend to be overconfident. Number one, we uh, uh, approach knowledge. We approach the sort of universe of stuff we don't know, looking to confirm the beliefs that we already have. So our beliefs are, are really in the driver's seat. This is part of the reason why we want to get to sort of standing outside of ourselves. Okay. Um, we uh, will think that things are more likely to occur because they're easier for us to recall. Yeah. There's, it's just a whole bunch of stuff that makes us want to get outside of ourselves. Uh, we believe that um, the world as it is today uh, will, is going to be much more like the world tomorrow than it actually will be. And we also believe that we have much more control over outcomes than we actually do. 
Um, so, uh, and that's just a sort of a subset. But basically, when we think about the biases that kind of frustrate our decision making, they're all living kind of inside of our own belief structures, what we call the inside view, the, our perspectives on the world and the way that we think about the world. And so that's why it's so important, like actually for real, find out what somebody thinks. Now, I know that that sounds super simple, but it's actually not because the way that we interact with the world, as I just said, is actually to confirm the things that we actually believe. So we sort of have this illusion that we're collecting other people's opinions and that we're thinking about the way that other people might view things and that we're trying to seek out other opinions. Uh, but mostly we're not doing that, which is why it needs to be a practice of intention. Yeah. Well, Annie, you do a fabulous job in the new book of describing it as decision hygiene, right? Saying that we can, especially in this time of pandemic, when people are actually thinking of infection, et cetera, it's an absolutely fabulous analogy. Uh, perhaps describe it in those terms. I think uh, those listening would, would appreciate hearing it that way, since the book's not available to them yet. <laughs> yes, it will, it will be, though, in seven days, um, <laughs> eight days. So yeah, so I opened that that chapter actually with a story about Ignaz Semmelweis. Um, not sure if anybody, if everybody knows who he is, but he was he was a doctor in the early 1800s, um, and he uh, was working in a hospital. And uh, at that time, um, the leading cause of death for women was uh, childbed fever. So you know, you you give birth and then you would get a fever and then you would die. And I think, I, I believe the rate of childbed fever was about 16%, which is very high. So, I mean, it was very dangerous to give birth then. So what happened to him was that he noticed that a colleague of his um, was doing an autopsy. And during the autopsy, his colleague cut himself with the scalpel that he was doing the autopsy with uh, and subsequently died of childbed fever. Well, that's weird because he didn't actually give birth, right? He was doing an autopsy. So Semmelweis kind of put two and two together and said, aha, I think the problem is that basically we're going from autopsy to delivery. Yep. And that what we actually need to do is to uh, make sure that we're practicing really good hand hygiene. And if we just wash our hands in between patients, particularly dead ones, <laughs> yep. um, then we should be able to reduce uh, childbed fever. So he instituted a policy of hand washing in that particular hospital and um, worked great. I think the incident of childbed fever went down to about 3%. Um, and he immediately got fired. <laughs> yep. It's weird, right? So, and the reason was that, I mean, sort of, again, going back to this idea that we reason about information, even information that seems like incredibly objectively compelling, we reason about it in a way that, um, will support our beliefs. The other doctors were quite offended by the idea that somehow they were infecting the patients and so rejected the evidence of their eyes and ears, as, as one might say. So he got fired. He went to a couple other hospitals, tried to institute hand washing there, um, got fired from those as well, eventually ended up in, at the time, what you would have called an insane asylum um, and died of an infection. Yep, ironic. <laughs> Just like, it's such a horrible kind of like Greek tragedy that happened. But of course the point was he was right, that it's really easy for us to infect people without knowing it. We certainly know that during a pandemic, but it's not just with germs, it's also with our own ideas. Um, and you know, we're all pretty familiar with the problem of like groupthink and the problem that we interact with new sources that tend to agree with us and whatnot. But the, one of the biggest problems we have is that when we're seeking out other people's advice, we tend to offer 
the opinion that we're trying to seek from them first. So as an example, like if I'm thinking about hiring a particular candidate and I want to get your uh, take on it, I'll generally say like, you know, I saw three candidates and then I'll tell you something about and the, this one candidate, you know, they have a great CV, but I'm kind of concerned about one of their references. But then the other references said they were great. And I talked to them and they're like super charismatic and on the ball and they were so creative in the interview. And I think they're awesome. What do you think? Yeah. And I've now, I just didn't wash my hands in between patients because essentially what I've just done to you is kind of one of three things in terms of my ability to actually find out what you think. Um, one thing is that you may disagree with me, but be unwilling to say so because you may, I may be in a superior position to you. You may be junior yeah. to me in some way, um, yeah. could be in a leadership role. I could be a subject matter expert. Like if I were telling you about a, a poker hand, I think that probably if you disagreed with me, you would probably assume that I was right. Yeah. So you may yeah. not speak up because you're just like, they must be right. And I don't really want to disagree with the boss. Um, you may not speak up because you think you're wrong. Mm -hmm. So you just don't want to embarrass yourself. But the other thing, and this is actually mostly what happens, is that your opinion will change as I'm speaking. Hmm. So as I'm telling you what I think, what's happening is that your opinion is sort of shape shifting so that by the time that you're actually delivering the feedback that I was seeking, it has now been distorted by all of the stuff that I told you. Not just my opinions, but also I may have told you the outcome. So uh, if I were to say to you, um, what do you think of Hillary Clinton's campaign strategy in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan? Uh, did you see how she crushed it and won every state? Mm -hmm. um, you would give me a very different opinion than if I asked you the same question and said she lost by a razor thin margin, despite the fact that the inputs in her strategy would have been identical. By telling you the outcome, I'll actually end up infecting you as well. So what we're trying to do is if I want to really get your opinion, I've got to figure out a way to withhold yep. all of that those germs basically from you. I need to not infect you with my own. As well as not share the outcome, right? I mean, the, the two- Right, parts, it's both things. Outcomes exactly. are infecting, are, are sort of transmissible also. <laughs> yeah, uh, and we, we can see that in all sorts of places. Like in Thinking of Bets, I opened that book with um, the Pete Carroll situation. So yep. in 2015 yep. in the Super Bowl, he calls for a pass play with 26 seconds left in the game, down four against the Patriots, second down on their one-yard line. So he's got to move this ball one yard, and everybody expects him to hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch. He chooses to throw a pass play, um, very famously intercepted. Mm -hmm. And this is really how incredibly distortive knowing the outcome is, right? This is this resulting problem that once you know the result of something, it's just you, you know, can't okay. get to decision quality anymore. This was declared by everybody, not just in-game, but afterwards, as one of the worst calls in the history of the Super Bowl. But when you actually map out the decision tree, and, and again, think probabilistically about what was the probability of that particular outcome occurring, as people like Benjamin Morris at 538 did, it turns out that the probability of an interception in that situation is about 1% to 2%. Um, and I can, it's a more complicated decision tree than that, but I can map out the decision and I can actually show you mathematically that this was actually quite a brilliant decision, not necessarily to pass on exactly first down, but to pass on either first down or second down, you wanted to get a pass in there. There's only, it has to do with clock management and game theory and, and probability and a whole bunch of stuff, but I, hopefully people will trust me on that. <laughs> but the problem is that what's really interesting is I've talked about that play. I talk about the play in the book. Um, 
And uh, for a couple of years, I've opened my talks with video of that play and kind of walked through it. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, someone comes up to me after the talk and just says, you're wrong. It was a terrible play. And I said, well, what's your evidence for that? You know, it's basically, well, because he lost. Yeah. And this is the whole resulting problem. And this is why you want to hopefully as much as you can not actually reveal the outcome to somebody is that despite the fact that at the time of the decision, there's many different branches of that tree. There's lots of different ways that that could turn out. And we can just narrow it down to three for purposes, you know, our purposes here, touchdown and complete pass interception. Let's just get rid of all the other ones of which there are some. Um, despite the fact that I can tell you there's three different ways it will turn out and they each have some sort of probability assigned to them. As soon as you know which way it turned out, the other ones just completely disappear from your cognitive landscape. That's the end of them. And the one that happened was inevitable. And obviously if the bad result is inevitable, the underlying decision must also be terrible as well. Um, But it's a little bit like saying like, I got home safely, so I drive better when I'm drunk. Yeah, that's kind of what we're doing all the time. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, it's uh, it, I, the whole outcome focused decision process analysis is really uh, problematic and yet so pervasive. So yep. uh, uh, I do understand that. All right. So any, I have a lot of questions flying in here. Uh, let me let's attack a couple of them here and there <laughs> as we go. Uh, what's your best book on decision making that you'd recommend? Besides, of course, thinking in bets, which I yeah. Well, no, that's how to decide. I'm sorry. In fact, they go well together. Yeah. <laughs> they go very well together. Um, besides well, that. Right. So I think in order to really improve your decision making, I wouldn't say a best book because I think that you need to attack it from two sides. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing is to really kind of understand, actually, I would say three sides. The first thing that you need to understand is kind of how does decision making go wrong? Um, and you know, obviously a book like thinking fast and slow, is going to get you a pretty broad overview of the ways that your decisions will go wrong. I would recommend that anybody read that book. That being said, it's not a particularly prescriptive book, yep. it's a much more descriptive book, but yep. a description that I think is actually incredibly important in order to understand why yep. should I care about this topic? Sure. You know, aren't I a good decision maker? I've been doing it since I was born. Yep. So why do, why do I need to become better? Um, go read that book and you will be a little bit horrified <laughs> at all the cognitive errors you're making. Um, and so read that. And then, but then in terms of actually improving your decision making, if you want something a little bit in the more prescriptive clay, uh, uh, space, you know, the Heath brothers, Chip and Dan Heath, just have like just an amazing body of work that you can go look at that I think are really, really good places to start in terms of your decision making. Obviously, if you want to go more into the choice architecture, um, a space, which would be just saying, how can I sort of uh, construct an environment that will push me toward better decisions, e- even though I have all of these weaknesses, something like Nudge yep. is, is an amazing book. If, if you want to sort of thinking about, just start thinking about environmental, mm-hmm. um, your, the space. Um, and then the last book that I would actually really highly recommend would be um, uh, The Success Equation, which is by Michael Mobison. And that, that's just an exploration of luck and skill, which I think is just really important because one of the things about great decision-making is a lot of what we just talked about is we tend to sort of um, over-index on skill as a, a driver of the outcomes in our life. And obviously in the long run, skill, skill is going to out. 
but in the short run, there's a very heavy influence of luck. And I think just getting a clear eye on luck is actually quite important to becoming a better decision maker. So I know, again, I never, I can't ever, it's like a potato chip. You can't have just one. I need to, you know, but that, that's what I would say. Yeah, it's interesting. The whole probabilistic way to think. I think, Annie, you do a great job of describing it. Uh, I think it was in Thinking and Bets, I, I forget. Uh, sort of life is either chess or poker uh, in those terms. And sort of thinking probabilistically is sort of a framing that I think is useful for those that haven't thought that way. Yeah, I would actually, so it's actually interesting, th- you know, sort of thinking about this resulting problem and it's actually related to the uncertainty problem. We can think of uncertainty in our decisions as coming from two places. Uh, Place number one is just luck. So uh, you can think about a coin flip, right? If I've examined the coin, I know everything that I need to know about the coin. So I can can know that taking on its side aside, um, it's gonna land heads or tails 50% of the time. And so when I make a judgment about it, like, do I wanna take a bet? It's yeah. going to be objective because I know what I actually know everything I need to know in order to know uh, if 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 I'm offering you a dollar ten for every dollar that um, you're going to pay me that it's just it's a losing bet. That right. that being said, the luck really matters because I can't control the actual outcome, right? So I I can I can I could take a good bet. You could give me a dollar and fifty cents for every dollar that I'm going to lose, and I can call heads, you know, and it's either going to land heads. So that's the first piece is luck. But the second thing is that actually on top of the luck element, most of the judgments that we make are subjective, meaning that we don't actually have complete information. So imagine sort of a partially hidden coin from us. Uh, imagine if you were in a situation where you said it's gonna land head somewhere between 20 and 80% of the time, go, right? And you're like, okay, uh, that, that becomes a little bit harder. Or maybe we don't even know how many sides are on the coin. Yeah. Um, and that looks more like our decision-making. And so we can think about that as the difference between chess and poker. Yep. So with chess, you don't have the same strong influence of luck. You know, you don't roll the dice and sorry, checkmate, you lose no matter where your position is. Um, and we don't have a strong influence of hidden information in the sense that I can see your whole board. And so now we can see what happens if we try to actually um, do some uh, resulting and does it work, right? So if we play chess and nobody's watched our game and all they know is that I lost you, they actually do know they can work backwards. Sure. Right. They can say P. Carroll made a terrible decision then, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in poker, that's not true. If if we play poker for an hour and and I lose, you don't actually know much about the decision quality, and that's that's that luck and what's the influence of luck and skill and hidden information problem. And once you add those into the mix, uh, decision quality and outcome quality become discorrelated. And then, then it's hard to say anything about what one outcome means. If we play for an hour and I win, I'm gonna put that like everywhere. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> I beat Annie. I don't okay. think it's possible, but that's okay. All right, let's go back. Another question. Um, do you still enjoy poker as much as you used to? And what would uh, be three pieces of advice you'd give to a poker beginner? Oh, um, so, uh, I mean, part of the reason why I left was because I didn't enjoy it as much as I used to. So, um, but when I do play like it for charity or whatever, I mean, the game is like endlessly fascinating. And so I find the game itself to be super, super, super awesome and fascinating and really wonderful. But, um, uh, you know, poker got to a place, I think if I went and tried to play poker now, I'd actually be quite bad at it because when I was playing, everybody was trying to sort of work out their own math and you weren't doing a tremendous amount of kind of like Monte Carlo simulations or 
um, you know, running like, you know, 10,000 hands online to try to figure out what the game theory optimal choice would be. We were trying to sort of work that stuff out by hand. And what that meant was that uh, the types of strategies that I could work with uh, that would work well for me, which were really relying on a very large skill gap between me and my opponents. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't I don't know that those would work well now. The state of knowledge of the game just in the last decade has advanced beyond what I think I would be willing to put the work in for. But when I'm playing, yeah, just I, not, if I were at the start of my career, I would put the work in, but not now. Gotcha. But has it turned more scientific, more mathematical? It's more? in the same way. I, I liken it to options trading. So yeah. uh, in the 80s, if you uh, just understand what it, understood what a conversion and a reversal were, you were so far ahead of the game. And people didn't understand that you could look at the box and see that it was mispriced, that the stock was just mispriced compared to the conversion. So... Uh, if you just understood that, you didn't necessarily need to know much more than that because you could just look for these big mispricings and then trade off of those. Um, now, there's you know everybody has quants up their eyeballs uh, and they're all running their models and uh, you know you're talking about instead of like edges that you could be measured in a quarter, um, now it's a quarter of a penny right? That, like in less. So, so you're just trading these incredibly small edges, which means that you just have to be so much better and so much faster at the game. I don't think it favors people who are older as much anymore. If I were just starting out, I would put in the work, you know, and I would understand and I would, I would be much more of a quant. But it's a little bit of a difference between that division between like the traders who are on the floor, which is what I would have considered myself much more to be, who were, um, and then who understood the math, but a lot of it was kind of reading the room and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. you know, in the quants and obviously I don't, I don't want to compete against the quants model. And that's, that's kind of where it is right now. So I think I would be quite bad if I tried to play now, um, okay. but in the form that I play it, yep. which is, you know, charity and whatnot, super, sure. super fun. Um, if I, in terms of advice for a beginner, um, the biggest advice that I can say is that you'll, you won't go wrong if you're a beginner, if you just do what's called playing tight. Um, meaning play a very restricted range of hands. That's how, actually how I started out um, because poker hands have two components to them. One is uh, the, their value, which is how good is the hand itself, meaning how likely is this hand probabilistically to win on its merits. Then the other value is the bluff value, right? Like how can how easily can I get myself out of a situation by just getting somebody to fold um, a hand that's better than mine? So obviously, when you're a beginner, uh, it's going to be harder for you to judge those opportunities that open up for you to be able to bluff, which means that you better have a hand that has more intrinsic value, that's more likely to win on its own. Uh, Very simple calculus there. So um, I think the biggest mistake that beginners make is they just play honestly way, way too many hands. And if they just narrow it down and say, I just don't want to get in trouble with the actual hand I select while I'm learning the game, they would be a lot better. That's advice number one. Mm -hmm. Advice number two is it's almost always better to be the the person who's raising or betting than the one who's calling. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason is that if you raise, you have two ways to win the hand. You could have the best hand or your opponent could fold. If you call, you have one way to win the hand. You have to have the best hand. I like to give myself two ways to win the hand. That is the second piece of advice that I would give somebody. Um, And the third piece of advice I would give somebody is it's always better to be in later position rather than earlier position. So the betting goes uh, in order. 
And um, some people have to go earlier rather than later. And the later you go in the betting, the more information, remember there's an information problem in poker, the more information you have by the time that you have to make a choice about whether you wanna continue with the hand and how you wanna do that. So um, you uh, should always prefer to be later in position. So that just means you should be much pickier about the hands you play when you have to go first. And you mm -hmm. can be much, much less picky about the hands you play when you get to go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, relating to that, how about emotions? Uh, there's a couple of questions about how do you manage your emotions uh, mm -hmm. situations? And it got me thinking a little bit about in, in, in how to decide. You talk about the sort of Ulysses problem or solution, I guess, is a better way to think about it. Uh, but, you know, how do you manage emotions? Yeah. So actually, do you remember when I, I talked about um, the uh, that uh, very first talk that I gave in 2002 where they asked me to talk about risk and I talked about something different. Mainly what I was talking about actually was the emotional component um, and how to get that under control. So emotions and poker are really a big deal. So it, it's an interesting trade-off that you're making with poker, which is uh, you're getting a very uh, fast feedback loop. You, you get feedback really, really, really quickly in that game, much more quickly than you do for most decisions that you would make in life. Um, I bet you do something back. Boom. I got feedback. Did my bet work? I don't know. And within two minutes, I actually, there's a chip exchange, which is an even bigger piece of feedback. Um, the downside to that is that we know that as we think about the way that we process the things that are happening around us, it's very path dependent. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and I can do that. I do the th this thought experiment. People say, you go and play blackjack. And let's say that uh, you start off the night winning $1,000 and then you lose it all back. Like, how do you feel? And everybody says, just like as sad as pot, like you, you just go back to your hotel room and you just want to cry. But if you start off the night losing $1,000 and you win it all back, meaning in both cases, you've broken even. In the second case, you're buying drinks. Now, obviously for everybody. Now, obviously this is, seems very irrational because in both cases you broke even, but we know that the path as to how you got there uh, is really consequential. And it, so unfortunately in poker, you can end up what's called ticker watching if people remember stocks, which is you're just sort of watching whether you're on a downward slope or an upward slope. Um, and so you can get into these incredibly emotionally hot states. That's combined with the fact that in order for poker to be fun, you actually have to be playing for some sort of stakes that matter to you. Mm -hmm. um, so when people are losing, they're losing, they're losing money that matters. Mm -hmm. um, and so they can get very emotionally hot. I used to say to people, one of the reasons why I did well in poker was not necessarily because I was more talented than other people, but because I played more the same whether I was winning or losing than most people did. Um, so I just kind of had my emotions more under control. And I think that some of that came from my cognitive science background. So, uh, so the first thing is to sort of recognize in advance the, dis the situations under which you probably won't make good decisions and try to figure out how to put in some pretty hard and fast rules, which would be called... Ulysses contracts um, that would pre-commit you to certain actions. So as an example in poker, um, when I first started playing, um, a, a sort of a reasonable amount of money for me to lose at the stakes I was playing was about $600. And so I just made a rule that if I lost $600, I was done. That's it. All done. All done. And now notice if I'm a perfectly rational human being, that's a horrible idea to have a loss limit because I should want to be uh, just churning money when I'm playing at an edge. But what I recognized was that when I was in an emotionally hot state, I wasn't going to be good at judging my own edge. 
-hmm. And so therefore I should not try to judge it at all. And I should sort of make a pre-commitment to that. Um, we can think about that if we think about like emotional eating, like what happens when we're tired or we forget to plan ahead and there's like a vending machine or a drive through on the way home or those kinds of things if you're trying to eat healthier and just pre-committing to actions that are going to stop you from actually uh, allowing your emotions to sort of send you astray. So you can apply this in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, like for example, if you get in a fight with your spouse, you can say you, you don't actually discuss it until the next day. Everybody has to go and calm down, for example. Um, you don't make trades and after you've lost a certain amount of money or we can kind of do that. The other thing that you can do that's actually incredibly helpful um, is to try to actually start to construct as you're so upset, to think through uh, when I made the decision that ended up with this outcome that has me so incredibly upset, um, to actually start to think through what that decision tree looks like and what knowledge went into it. Because what will happen is we'll have a really bad outcome and then it will actually negatively impact our, our decision-making going forward. Um, it's, that's called tilt. And so if we can go back to the decision and say, well, let me actually think about what were the possible outcomes, what was the prob probability of the one I observed, and what was my state of knowledge at the time that I actually made the decision. Um, it's, and obviously that may help you actually work through making better decisions in the future, but mostly that's to calm you down. And the reason why it's going to calm you down is that in order to answer any of those questions, you have to get into your prefrontal cortex. Yeah. And your prefrontal cortex ha happens to have a, an inhibitory relationship with your limbic system, which is where your emotions live. So by going through and saying, what were my assumptions? What are the things that I knew at the time of the decision? Um, uh, is there anything that now I should, maybe I should be changing my model of my opponent or my model of this particular decision that I was considering? Uh, how often was this actually going to occur? you're just going to naturally calm your emotions down because you're in a different part of your brain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I'm going to take from that is I should not buy the box of lucky charms and leave it at home. If it's at home, I'll eat no. it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's exactly, it's like, <laughs> I don't want to eat them. I don't want to have them, but yeah, I when them. I'm tired and when I'm upset, yeah. if I'm like watching the news, which I don't even know why I watch the news anymore, but whatever. Um, that's when I'm going to, you know, that's when I'm going to want to eat something really bad for me that I, I really would prefer not to. And so if I can foresee the, that, it's not that I'm taking care of, that I'm, it's not that I'm not going to be upset at that moment. It's that the bad decisions that can result from those emotions are going to be taken away from me because I'm not going to have that stuff in my house. Yep. In the same way that if I set a loss limit, I'm still going to be upset that I lost, but I'm not going to be able to churn more money through the game. Sure. at a time when I'm actually yep. quite unhappy. So yep. there's, you know, sort of a double-edged strategy. One is, look, we're human beings and we're going to be upset and that's okay as long as we're not making, making poor decisions under those circumstances. And then the other thing is sometimes you still have to make decisions. Yeah. Sometimes I don't have that option. So what are the ways that I can calm myself down? Yep, yep. So we're running out of time, but I want to squeeze in this last question here. Um, and it's sort of when attempting to design truth-seeking teams in business, what causes well-meaning groups to fail or succeed for that matter? Yeah. And, you know, so how do you translate some of these insights of decision-making into that group format in a business context? I think that's sure. a topic that a couple of people are raising here. So, 
Yeah, actually, that's a really excellent topic. And I, I think I've addressed that a little bit in, in how to decide. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that what can happen sometimes is that truth seeking can masquerade as just a license to say anything, no matter how rude to another person, because they're just supposed to hear it without defense. Um, and I think that that's when uh, it can really break down into this, like, I get to say what I want, and I don't need to think about you as another human being, because we've agreed to give each other honest feedback. Um, and I've seen that happen in, in, in some groups. So I, I think that you need to protect against that. And the two ways that I think that you can protect against that is one is to generally not be eliciting the opinions in a group setting to try to get those from people independently prior to the group actually coming together to discuss. So that allows people to really express their points of view, first of all, not being infected by other people, right, which solves that first problem of what happens when you hear my opinion first, but also kind of in this safety, right, of I get to say what I mean, and nobody's going to be telling me I'm wrong in that moment, and I get the space to sort of explain what my opinions are. Yeah. Then when you come into the group, I think it's incredibly important to understand that when the group is talking, you need to be thinking about the lens of conveying information versus convincing other people of your side. So even when people get into truth-seeking groups, they still want other people to think that they're right. And the minute that you do that, that's when you interrupt and you tell people they're wrong and they're not thinking about things from the right angles. If instead it's, hey, Vikram, you, you have this particular opinion, can you convey to me what the reasons are that you actually believe this, that we've elicited from you beforehand and you get the space to tell me all the data and what, how you're modeling it and how you're thinking about the problem, I can then ask you questions for clarification. But I'm not allowed to say, but you haven't thought about this or you haven't thought about this or you haven't thought about this. Sure. Then I get to say what I think because that's where I get to say, well, this is how I'm thinking about it. Yep. And this is the data that I'm bringing into it. Notice it's non-confrontational. And then the last thing that you have to realize is that the goal of the conversation is not to come to agreement. There's no reason that you should. And in fact, you should be quite happy that those different points of view get to sort of live in the group because that's generally going to get everybody to a place of more accuracy. And I think that when we come in there, we sort of feel like um, I need people to agree with me in order for me to feel like I'm a certified member of the group. Yeah. So instead, if it's convey, don't convince, elicit feedback in advance and realize that the goal of the conversation is not to agree, it's actually just to inform. Yeah. Well, I think it's fabulous. And the way you describe it in the book is sort of don't seek necessarily disagreement, but divergence. It's sort of a yeah. less emotional term to it. It's like, not that, like this is that, much better, that we have just different views and help inform yeah. the environment. So uh, yeah. it's fabulous. So uh, sadly, and I think we're out of time. I, I try I to our deadline, but I do want to emphasize to everyone uh, listening here, the, the book is absolutely fabulous. I do recommend it highly. I would think actually the combo of thinking in bets as well as how to decide is a is a fabulous one-two punch not only to learn about some of the decision-making problems we all suffer through but how to address some of them and yeah. sort of make better decisions so uh, any thank you okay and i just want to add somebody asked a question right at the end which is about bayesian theory okay. um and how you apply that to decision making. I know we're out of time, so That's I would a like huge can of worms. That's I would like no, no. I would like Fouad to just email me. You can give him my perfect. I don't know. I'm assuming. I don't know. They, you can give them yep. um, my um, email because I would be happy to answer that question offline for them. Perfect. Yeah. So thank you, Annie, for taking the time. Thank you for writing these fabulous books, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani.
As a reminder, the video replay of today's episode is available at www.mansharamani.com. Finally, if you've not already done so, we encourage you to subscribe to the Think for Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you.